Hey, Matt. Hello, Brian. Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone watching. Uh, welcome again to another episode of Crate Digging presented by Jazz Is. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, I'm Brian Zimmerman, executive editor of Jazz Is Magazine. And Matt, you are? I'm Matt McCucci, just an old chunk of coal. <laughs> just an old chunk of but coal. But I'm going to be a diamond someday. That's right. If we pressure you hard enough. And we do. But uh, yeah, this is part of our crate digging series in which, you know, Matt and I are really just kind of nostalgic for the days where you would share albums, you know, at record stores or you'd have people over, you'd spin real CDs, real records, maybe trade a cassette or an eight track or two. Um, and so we thought we would bring that into the digital era. And uh, the idea is every week we pick a theme and we kind of swap albums um, regarding the given theme and we invite everyone watching uh, to do the same as well. If you've got an album based on our theme, please leave it in the comments section. Uh, you know, we'd be happy to read it. Anyway, the theme for today's episode is all about the West Coast, America's West Coast, that is. Uh, we're talking California, Oregon, Washington, and the jazz scenes that emanated from those places. And uh, boy, you know, mm. some of the jazz on the West Coast is, is some of the best jazz in the world. You know, obviously, you could go back even to the bebop days where Central Avenue in Los Angeles kind of rivaled anything in New York City in terms of bebop. Um, all the way through, gosh, the 50s, 60s cool jazz scenes, uh, you know, fusion and the stuff, the jazz rock stuff coming out of San Francisco with Santana and up in Seattle with uh, Jimi Hendrix, so on and so forth. Not to mention, Matt, the amazing players that came out of the West Coast, you know, yeah. from Dexter Gordon, uh, Charles Mingus, all the way to, you know, the modern era with some of the guys in the West Coast get down scene. I'm talking your Kamasi Washington's, Brandon Coleman's, uh, Terrace Martin, Casa overall up in uh, up in Seattle. So a lot to talk about with regard to the West Coast. And the idea here would just be to swap some albums that came from that scene. Um, I put my own little stipulation on this was that, and I think you did too, these are not necessarily albums that came from players who were born on the West Coast. So while Dexter Gordon, you know, came up in L.A., you know, he made his mark mostly in New York and in Europe, ditto for, you know, Mingus. Um, so we these were scenes that were organic, were native to the West Coast. Right, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. And I also kind of, you know, decided to focus on the the cool movement that that period of time, especially the 50s. Uh, so that's that's just to kind of give a little bit of a narrative to my picks as well. So and I saw that move coming and I kind of parried around it. So I've got <laughs> I've got albums from all over. Um, so, yeah, Matt, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, which is the first album you were able to dig for, from the crate there? Oh, yeah. This is an album that's super famous, and it's Chet Baker Sings from 1954. It is. So anyways, uh, yeah, so this is the first part in my trilogy <laughs> dedicated to this particularly fascinating period of, uh, of jazz music. And if we are to understand West Coast jazz as, uh, uh, as a more melodic, more uh, generally prettier uh, than what was happening around the same time in the East Coast. Um, Chet Baker then is definitely its ultimate embodiment, both in a musical sense and in a physical sense as well, because, well, Chet Baker, uh, we all know, was a, a very pretty boy, I would say. Uh, his audience was was really uh, largely made up of female uh, as well. So uh, anyways, um, 
musically, Chet was all about the melody. Uh, but what makes this specific album truly iconic is that it was the one that really marked his debut as a vocalist as well. Uh, and so Chet Baker was an amazing singer, uh, was a great trumpet player as well. Uh, I feel this move actually was the move that turned him into a superstar, uh, though he probably would have punched you in the face if you'd said it, because uh, he, uh, well, he was a tough guy. And also he liked to see himself as a trumpeter who also sang rather than the other way around. But guess what? Chet really could sing and what and he he seemed to do it so effortlessly, that relaxed way of delivering lyrics and also just breathing new life into standards. Uh, he really redefined romanticism and music and continues to be super influential to this day. Absolutely. I love oh, Chet Baker. Go ahead. And if Nick. I can just say one more thing about Chet Baker, which I wanted to make a point uh, to mention, because we are talking about the West Coast, but Chet mm -hmm. Baker was a, was an ambassador of this style of music as well. Uh, the West Coast cool school, let's say, in Europe, because he spent so much time in Europe. He actually died in Europe as well. He spent a very long time in Italy, for example, was also imprisoned uh, here for some time, uh, taught himself to speak Italian, and uh, became super famous. I mean, the mainstream jazz of continental Europe of the 50s and 60s, I would dare say, was directly influenced by the prolific recording output of Chet Baker at this time, especially from the musicians who weren't as avant-garde as others. And uh, uh, yeah, so I wanted to, to say that because uh, I, I actually feel that in Europe, Chet Baker is even more criti critically acclaimed than in the States. I don't know whether you'd agree, uh, Brian, but super influential here. I think so. And some of the albums that he did with Norwegian players, with Italian players, with French players uh, are just fantastic. He, he remains my closest guiding spirit as a trumpet player. Um, there is some debate over whether or not he could read music and how that influenced his approach to melody. I mean, he had just such an incredible ear, um, almost new... He had a, had a perfect sense of how a line should be shaped um, and how he could just color outside of the line a little bit harmonically so that it wasn't too out, but just fit and was so perfect. Uh, he's one of those, you know, like one of those great writers who can just put together a, a perfect, succinct, short sentence. He didn't say much, but what he said was absolutely beautiful. No, I love Chet. So a great pick. And it's important to mention, you know, this cool jazz scene is so, you know, often associated with the West Coast. There was a lot of, you know, quote unquote, harder stuff going on at the time to the extent there was even kind of a micro genre going out of the West Coast at the time called West Coast Hard, which was a lot of players from Audis, you know, Clifford Brown, Max Roach, who had bands even temporarily, uh, Wardell Gray, another saxophone player in Los Angeles, who were really cutting some quote unquote harder jazz. So. When you think back on the West Coast in the 50s, it wasn't all cool. There was a lot of absolutely hard swinging stuff out there as well. I went for my first pick to the complete opposite side of the timeline, uh, Matt. And, you know, again, just like you can't mention West Coast jazz without Chet Baker, you can't mention West Coast jazz without Kamasi Washington. <laughs> um, you know, this album, The Epic by Kamasi Washington, came out in two, 2015. So it's new, but with its release um, and with the subsequent release of musicians from Kamasi's orbit, I mean, these players essentially revitalized uh, West Coast jazz in a lot of ways. Um, so this 
album grew out of a collaborative, I guess a collective of musicians based in Los Angeles um, that were all kind of going to high school at the same time and were playing in the same after school programs at the same time. Um, and you no doubt recognize the name of some of these musicians, Kamasi Washington, Miles Mosley, Ronald Bruner Jr., uh, Thundercat, uh, Brandon Coleman. These were all players who were growing up in LA and again, going to this after school program. And they were developing this style of music that blended, of course, the old school jazz that they were listening to, the traditional jazz that they were listening to, plus, you know, G funk, hip hop, funk, uh, a little bit of everything that was going on, on the West Coast. And they really hit a vein with this music, not just for jazz fans, but for all music fans. Um, sometime in between 2000. 13 2014 they all got together and all recorded uh, a bunch of different albums in this little group um, of their own work of their own original compositions and then release them subsequently over the next three four five years some of those albums are still coming out um, but the epic was this three cd i think eight lp you know epic album uh that really put this group on the mat it turned kamasi into an international superstar um before long he was playing rock festivals he was you know all your coachellas Lollapaloozas, uh that kind of stuff he was playing on albums by kendrick lamar i mean he really hit a vein with this style of music and you can hear why it's infectious it's got energy it reminds me a lot of the ways of the london scene um in terms of it really tries to harness the energy of a live show even in studio recordings and uh yeah kamasi and this crew which he calls the west coast get down um they're kind of the face of la jazz right now and uh rightfully so they're doing a lot of exciting stuff and i said like i said reaching across the aisle to hip-hop artists are collaborating with snoop dogg on one hand but then collaborating with herbie hancock on the other so they straddle a lot of generations they straddle a lot of styles and uh yeah it makes for some epic listening for sure but like i say we had to get uh this album in here early because it is essentially the face of uh of west coast music right now so that was my first pick kamasi washington the epic love it it's an epic album it is an epic album for sure lives up to its name in every sense of the term uh what is next matt mccucci for you, you all right it, so i'll pull it up the second part of my trilogy yes we stick with the 50s and uh, it is art pepper Meet the rhythm section. <laughs> so this is a fascinating album because it's story. All right. So the story of this album, as Pepper told it in uh, Straight Life, uh, his autobiography, is that he woke up on the day of its recording uh, in 1957, not knowing that he had been booked to go in the studio that same day. So on top of that, again, he said he had done nothing but, you know, heroin <laughs> uh, for weeks and he hadn't touched his saxophone in weeks either uh well some some of this tale is actually not true uh you know he had been recording uh, in the weeks prior to that in the days prior to this session uh but it doesn't matter uh, but but it does definitely add to the legend of this landmark uh, West Coast jazz recording and showcases the distinctive uh, suave yet even rugged voice of uh, our pepper on saxophone which he had developed at the time and was perfecting at the time as well and by the way the rhythm section of the title <laughs> is that of miles davis so you've got red garland paul chambers billy joe jones you know 
I mean, so that means that uh, inherently this album could just as easily um, have been called the West Coast meets the East Coast. And this meetings of styles, approaches and influences is definitely uh, one of the factors that makes this album so legendary as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's always that lore that there was this beef, just like you'd see later on in hip hop between like Biggie and Tupac, that there was this, you know, beef between the West Coast jazz scene and the East Coast jazz scene. But there was a lot of collaboration as well. Um, yeah. Some beautiful collaboration, you know, as you'd see here, Miles Davis's group coming out West, Chet Baker going out in New York. There's a Chet Baker in New York album that's just phenomenal. So uh, there was a lot of beautiful co collaboration between the coasts as well. Um, I think my next album, Matt, is going to throw you for a loop. You may not have seen it coming. But again, in my opinion, you cannot mention West Coast jazz. You cannot mention West Coast music without bringing up the great Herb Alpert. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy is a not only did he make his name in Los Angeles um, and, and his record label in Los Angeles, AM Records, but he was a Los Angeles native. I mean, he was born and raised in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, yeah. What can you say about The Lonely Bull? This was his release in 1962. This was his debut album from Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. And uh, it has been described in uh, by Questlove of The Roots who I wouldn't expect to be Herb Alpert in, but apparently is, as the happiest music in the world. Um, and I would certainly agree with that. You know, we spoke with Herb uh, for our November issue. Uh, we have a, a, Q a long form Q&A with him. You can check it out on our website. And, you know, he was just basically saying with this, this debut album, he wasn't trying to be novel. He wasn't trying to do anything quirky with the sound. He just genuinely was in, fell in love with this sound and a trip down to Tijuana to see a bullfight, heard the mariachi bands, and thought, you know, why can't I apply this to the instrumental pop of today? Why can't I apply this to jazz? Um, he wasn't trying to make a hit record. He wasn't trying to do, like I say, uh, you know, anything kitschy or surprising. But again, this is a story of really hitting a vein with popular audiences. People fell in love with the sound, fell in love with this record. Um, and of course, subsequent records, including Whipped Cream and Other Delights. Uh, but this was the first kind of introduced us to the sound. Lots of originals on here, including the title track by Saul Lake, um, but also some covers of, you know, like chubby checkers song and it's just a really kind of amazing album and you're hearing the birth of a sound a sound that would go on to kind of define instrumental pop throughout the 60s uh and people forget just how popular this sound was i mean in the 60s herb albert outsold the beatles in the united states in terms of, you know, records moved. Um, so this is just kind of iconic stuff. Again, if you're thinking the LA sound, if you're thinking LA jazz, if you're thinking LA musicians, you know, you'd be remiss to not mention the great Herb Alpert. Yeah, I love Herb Alpert. You know, uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights was my was uh, one of the first albums I bought on vinyl. <laughs> ah, very nice. So... You're not alone there. Yeah. <laughs> He's been asked about that cover quite a few times. You know, uh, what the, was that his, model wearing under the whipped cream? I think his covers are amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so it's time for my third, <laughs> third pick for this uh, crate digging edition. And um, 
How about this? So uh, I talked about uh, the West Coast kind of cool school somewhat. Uh, our Peppers album is a kind of a crossover. But this one is, uh, is almost a rebellious one in its intent. Uh, so it's by Stan Getz, and it's called West Coast Jazz. Now, West Coast jazz is just a term that means a specific style of music, which, like I mentioned at the start, is generally accepted to, you know, be... It's understood as, as um, you know, uh, for, for its greater interest in arrangement, composition, it's uh, over sheer improvisation even. And um, so it is ironic that Stan Getz's West Coast jazz album, despite its title, should so openly oppose... Uh, you know, pose maybe is a, a word too strong, but just uh, many of the of the elements that uh, defined this this particular type of music, and uh, in fact, it features some of his most muscular playing ever. I feel. I mean, just listen to that take on uh, a night in Tunisia. It, it's almost like ja the, the jazz equivalent of punk rock to me of the time. Uh, it's really fast and just super fast um, and energetic. But uh, gets himself wasn't from the West coast though he was very active there but his warm lyrical tone on the saxophone actually fits in really well with that scene in many ways it even represents it and uh you know his famous kind of bossa nova records further uh show uh showcased this particular style of saxophone playing very influential uh but this album so back to the album rather than being the west coast jazz manifesto of the time that you would expect uh, has more to do with the bebop movement and even the hard bop movement that would come a little later on. But just, um, it really shows that Getz in his heart and is in, in his vision and in his artistic vision, really loved to constantly defy conventions. I think that's, and that's why I picked this album. It's because you never know what you're going to get despite, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge an album by its title either. <laughs> Yeah, defying conventions, starting conventions with regard to Bossa Nova was really the first one to help kind of usher that into the United States as well. So good pick there, uh, Matt. Absolutely. And, you know, we have been focusing a lot on uh, Southern uh, California and the Los Angeles scene because so much of the West Coast jazz grew out of that area. But, you know, we can't forget moving up the state and even up the coast into, you know, players from, uh, you know, Central California. Uh, 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 Gregory Porter, the vocalist from Bakersfield, grew up there, recently moved back there all the way up into San Francisco. Of course, Vince Guaraldi, uh, Paul Desmond from mm -hmm. San Francisco, Johnny Math, Eddie Duran, um, over in Oakland, you know, you have Ambrose Akinmusiri is a big player, um, you know, uh, also recently moved back to the Bay Area. Um, and then, like I say, all the way up into into Oregon and Washington. So we can't leave out those great uh, NorCal players as well. Uh, I'm going to throw us again for another loop um, with my third album. And uh, again, you don't often associate this player with the West Coast, but he this is where he cut his teeth. This is where the debut album was recorded. This is where so much of his band came from. Uh, Matt, you're going to like this one too. It's Ornette Coleman's Something Else. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, because let's not forget, you know, Ornette, Ornette moved from 
Texas to California was working another number of odd jobs as a you know elevator operator stuff like that and the whole time kind of conceiving of what would become avant-garde jazz um, put together this band of outstanding players that were also in Los Angeles um, you know Billy Higgins on drums who is a native and for countless LA m- musicians remained uh, a mentor. Uh, but of course, Don Cherry on cornet, Walter Norris on piano, Don Payne on bass. And this was recorded, this debut album by this group on uh, Contemporary Records, which was a Los Angeles-based records. You know, uh, the follow-up the follow to this to this album, The Shape of Jazz to Come, will be recorded on Atlantic in 1959. Again, kind of a groundbreaking moment for jazz. But this was really the first one where the world was exposed to Ornette's sound which again, kind of did away with, we were talking about conventions, did away with the conventions of chord structure, of, you know, standard time. Um, and yeah, so this this album, something else with four exclamation points, um, was, you know, an, a West Coast album. This is where this sound came from. Um, and yeah, Matt, I know you're a huge fan of Ornette. And like I say, people don't necessarily... I don't know that they would. This would be the first album to come to mind when thinking West Coast jazz. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, Matt, something else. The music of Ornette Coleman is a West Coast jazz album. Yeah, Ornette Coleman certainly was something else, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Matt. Very good. I could hear I the know. four exclamation points in your voice. <laughs> All Absolutely. right, we decide. So for our our fourth and final album. We decided we'd pick a more recent album, more semi-recent album, because we didn't totally want to be stuck in the past. Uh, we kind of wanted to bring things up to date. Um, so we picked recent albums for our fourth albums. Both are archival, but again, they were released, well, in the case of yours, released this year. Mine was released a yeah. year or two ago. But um, So yeah, let's move on to uh, our fourth and final album. Which one is it for you, Matt? All right, so this is actually very recent in the sense that it was released last week, I believe, via Verve. Um, and uh, it's a new release that I chose to spotlight also because of the theme of this this episode of Crate Digging. And because, uh, of course, it's one, by one of the major figures of, of the West Coast style and the cool jazz movement at large, uh, Dave Brubeck. So moment of silence there for Dave Brubeck. I mean, you know, what a guy. It's a solo album of lullabies, hence the title. Uh, Some familiar as others entirely improvised. And it was recorded in 2010 as a gift uh, to his grandchildren when he was 91 years old. And in it, we really hear the essence of Brubeck's piano playing. Um, And the fact that some of it you know, seems to have been recorded on the moment, makes it all the more intimate. It's almost like we're just connecting uh, with the great pianist, uh, just like that, just um, uh, to the power of music. And uh, I really loved it. I, you know, just listened to uh, Brahms' Lullaby. I struggle to think of anything released um, recently that's just as beautiful as that. Uh, for any en- enhanced experience, uh, I would definitely suggest that you listen to this album late at night obviously that's uh how it was probably intended uh to have been uh, listened to great way to celebrate of course that the 100th um is 100th the 100th anniversary of his birth which is next month and brian you know i just uh, this is uh, interesting because i also found out that dave brubeck's beautiful 
uh, Connecticut home is now for sale. Uh, if you're interested oh, wow. in buying it. <laughs> If I've seen pictures it. of it. I've seen pictures of it because Jazz is did a spread on Dave Brubeck back in the day where he was oh. out in his yard in the Connecticut wilderness, um, yeah. you know, in front of his house, and it was just beautiful. Yeah. Before that, though, obviously he grew up in Northern California. Um, that's where he met Paul Desmond. I think he met Paul Desmond in the army, actually. Um, you know, and then would go on to record some of the music with him. You know, take five, obviously, Blue Rondo, a la Turk, um, some of the most influential music in jazz well, with Paul, who was, again, another uh, Bay Area native. So definitely fits our West Coast jazz theme for sure. Um, my pick for the recent album uh, came out last year, 2019. And again, it's an archival material. It's not from a native West Coaster, um, but it was recorded on the West Coast. And I decided to bring us few notches north latitudinally uh into seattle <laughs> the album is cannibal adderley swinging in seattle live at the penthouse uh 1966 to 1967 um and cannibal was an you know just an absolute monster of swing i mean you know you know him from miles davis's first great great quintet um he was from florida in fact he was a band teacher in fort lauderdale before he made the move to new york um to become a you know professional jazz musician um and yeah this uh series of recordings took place in seattle at the penthouse between 1966 and 1977 uh it's a great little quintet with cannibal on saxophone his brother nat adderley on cornet Joe Zavino on piano, uh, Victor Gaskin on bass, and Roy McCurdy on drums. Uh, it takes place over the course of four no four nights, um, at the last performance of which happens to be just a week before he will record that famous Mercy, Mercy, Mercy section uh, session um, at the club in Capitol Records in Hollywood. Um, and yeah, I mean, Cannibal, the rumor about Cannibal what they said about Cannibal, what he was so creative that he would never play the same lick twice, you know? So a lot of players will have their fallback licks that they would, you know, play here, you know, for all their genius, you hear it a lot in, uh, you know, Charlie Parker, uh, Lee Morgan. Um, but the, the rumor about Cannibal is he'd never play the same lick twice. Uh, and so much of that just comes from boundless creativity when it comes to his sound and the shape and the direction of lines. He drew a lot from his, you know, gospel spiritual background. Um, so you think of songs like Mercy, 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 um, definitely have a gospel vibe. Some beautiful cuts on this album, uh, including uh, the ballad Somewhere, you know, from West Side Story. A lot of players of Cannonball's caliber and of Cannonball's energy can really rip on the upbeat stuff, you know? Uh, and when it comes to burners, they can crank up the flames. But on ballads that don't necessarily know how to turn down that flame, if you will, that is not the case for Cannonball at all. He is just as eloquent on a ballad as he is uh, in the up-tempo stuff as well. So yeah, if you're a Cannonball fan, if you're a fan of, you know, 60s hard bop, this is a great session to check out. Um, a few more cuts on here. He's got Back Home Blues on here. And what's also nice is you get a lot of intros and outros, you know, of material. So you get to hear Cannonball's voice. He was just, he was a funny guy. He was a witty guy. Um, and again, these days when we're all craving live music, it's a real treat to turn on something that was recorded live. So 
thought I'd bring it up north a little bit to Seattle to close out our West Coast crate digging session, Matt. What do you think? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Hey, one, one last thing about West Coast jazz. We forgot to mention, but we probably should. There's a connection there with cinema as well. So much uh, so much great jazz in movies. And back in the golden age of uh, American cinema, so much jazz defined the vibes of the of the music, especially that of uh, the 50s that I was talking about earlier. Uh, so many musicians found jobs in film productions and really shaped the vibe of an entire popular culture because cinema was just such a powerful form of entertainment back then, kind of, you know, decreased after a while now with the advent of television. But uh, certainly back then, West Coast jazz just reigned supreme as far as uh, sound film soundtracks were concerned as well. Just a little footnote to, to our awesome episode of crate digging <laughs> from our resident movie buff man Mikuchi. well hey man thanks for digging through the crates with me uh for this west coast episode um if people watching if you have any suggestions leave them in the comments and uh we'll see what we get into next week thanks everybody for commenting live lavinia hello to you paolo thanks for chiming in and sean piper my old friend sean piper a great drummer uh in washington dc thanks for watching sean uh matt this has been awesome. Yeah, so much fun. <laughs> yeah, man. So I will see you next week for another episode of Crate Digging. We also have our 10 albums you need to know for November that we have oh, to yeah. talk about here on the live stream. But if you want to read those albums, they are up on the site right now, as is our November digital issue, uh, which, again, features this amazing interview with Herb Alpert, also with Russell Ferrante of the Yellow Jackets. A lot of cool stuff going on on the website right now. Check it out, jazzes.com. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on YouTube. Definitely hit that notification button so you know when we're going live. And uh, we'll see you around next week. Thanks for watching, yeah. everybody. So long. <laughs>